All right. Shall we? Let's shall. Let's howdy doody. Let's do it. What if I say howdy doody? Do you feel good about that or bad about that? I love um, it. Okay, I think great. that I think that was the start of the episode. I'm anticipating all of this will be left no. in. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. My name is Nick and I'm here today with Todd. Hello. And Percy. Howdy. This week we're here to chat about paranoia and how paranoia can play into theater and performance. And for the purposes of this discussion, we uh, decided to get together and read three plays that we're going to discuss. Um, Wait Until Dark by Frederick Knott. Gaslight, which is also known as Angel Street by Patrick Hamilton. And The Woman in Black by Stephen Malatrat, which is based on the book by Susan Hill. Um, so why don't we dive in with Wait Until Dark. My first response to this play is that I wish that I had seen it instead of reading it because it is simply just like <laughs> it spells out everything in such such detail on the page that I'm just like, oh, well, this isn't <laughs> I'm not feeling any suspense from from this experience. It does. It actually, hearing you say that makes me realize that entertainingly enough, suspense and farce actually live very, like, close to one another. Because this, is, this play is low-key just a farce. <laughs> right. Like, if it weren't, if the stakes were any lower, it would be a farce. And if, frankly, if it's a bad performance of it, it probably becomes a farce. <laughs> I, this play could be extremely funny. Um, yes. I don't know that it should be it extremely funny. <laughs> it yes, be. it's not intended to be funny, but I, I think if you misfired, it, it could be. Well, it does. It does. This is a tangent and we'll get back to our course and just it does. It does kind of teeter on the edge of making fun of blind people, which is probably not great. Yeah. For those who haven't seen or read the play, I feel like we should briefly. Um, oh, yeah. So Synopsize. basically there's these there's these con men who are trying to find this doll. Um, so they gaslight the shit out of this blind woman and take advantage of the fact that she is blind to search the apartment for this doll after like um, sending her husband away on some imagined errand that is in New Jersey. Important um, context. The doll is full of heroin. The doll's full of heroin. Oh, yeah, that is important context. They just really want the latest Christmas doll. You know, I it's one of those dolls that you sell for like six hundred dollars because all of the kids want it. Um, and then you sell all the heroin and you sell the heroin. In it. Uh, this is a an alarming peek into any season planning meeting that I'm a part of, because this is how I summarize plays in my professional life also. Um, sorry, everyone. Anyway, so they they just like are searching the apartment and like uh, f- trying to fool this blind woman and stop her from realizing what they're doing. And she eventually gets wise to them with the help of a nine year old that like goes grocery shopping for her and whatnot. And also the con men's relationship kind of devolves and it has this, you know, dramatic ending in which in which the doll is is discovered and found. And the most dramatic use of fridge lighting in any play. It's true. It's true. At the end, she like turns out all of the lights and the the fridge becomes the only viable source of light, um, which is actually kind of cool. But otherwise, yeah, there is there is some ableism that would need to be addressed where you to produce this play. But it, I think, is very much playing on 
the audience not knowing what's going to happen next and also sort of relying on the audience to put a lot of visual pieces of the puzzle together because you are like if you, if you weren't reading what was happening you would have to track like what does it mean when they open the blinds two times or what does it mean when this happens and this happens and and all of and all of the things um like there's a lot going on to track yeah talking about the idea we've mentioned before of paranoia being kind of secret knowledge i think this play actually models paranoia in a really great way in terms of what it shows on stage because there is this constant the opening scene so this is not a spoiler but we mentioned there are three con men in the opening scene the third of them extorts the other two who do not know him into participating in this with him Mm -hmm. um and it's uh it's it's revealed that he has murdered another acquaintance of theirs like beforehand so the stakes are pretty high and they are like strong-armed into helping this guy and then all three of them are, you know, developing this elaborate system of codes and this elaborate con that they're pulling on Susie, the woman who eventually cottons on to the fact that something is going on and like first first becomes suspicious of one of them and then suspicious of the other and then suspicious of the third. So there is this kind of great building of paranoia on stage which i although i would say maybe because the audience is in on the entire thing i don't know if it builds paranoia exactly in the audience Mm -hmm. Susie experiences it but we the audience don't because we have more information yeah i think what's satisfying about watching the play unfold is that you are like rooting for Susie to figure it out um the way like if you're watching a horror movie and you know that um michael myers is inside the closet and you know you're you're like you're you're seeing what's going to happen to the people on screen but you don't feel like you know that he's not in your closet Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah yeah but i think this raises an important question which is the difference between suspense and paranoia because i would argue this play is suspenseful Mm mm-hmm yeah. And I wonder if maybe that's what the audience being in on it accomplishes is, mm-hmm. you know, if you become paranoid when you don't have the knowledge of what everyone else is doing, maybe suspense is the opposite of that, where you're looking at a system, a situation where you have almost total knowledge, actually, because the audience watches the con men like come up with most of their plan or or the i guess i should say they you watch them come up with the foundation of their plan and you meet them all so there's never any revelation of like oh my god like i didn't know this guy was part of it like we know who these three people are yeah like there there's no surprise for the audience in that you're just waiting to see you're holding your breath waiting to see when anybody else will figure out and whether the house of cards will come crashing down so like interesting hypothetical if you did this play without the first scene where you see them like make this plan would it be a play that inspires paranoia in the audience i think so i or something closer to paranoia i i guess i uh, paranoia is maybe a a slightly word um well i feel like paranoia in implies a personal stake exactly yeah um, which like, I certainly don't like, I don't care what happens to any of these people, um, in like a personal investment sort of way, the way that I would, if, I don't know, my character was at risk because Todd's, because quick BDE, um, 
shot me with a gun. Totally, totally, yeah. Well, and so I think in a in a very different way, Gaslight mm-hmm. um, by Patrick Hamilton uh, showcases paranoia in its main character, but we know as much as that character knows. Um, and so the audience has this sense of like, is she being a reliable narrator or not? Which is a very different sort of situation than with Susie. So with Bella, um, we like see her on an afternoon, her and her husband um seem a little tense and they seem that they're like getting over some tension whatever that might be um and we find that she's been misplacing things um that she has been very like on edge and she looks like she hasn't been sleeping well lately um and her husband accuses her of like removing a painting from the wall and hiding it somewhere in the house um and she finds where it is but seems to have like no knowledge of how it came down from the wall why it came down from the wall what's going on um and we learn that this has been a pattern um his keys and rings have gone missing and wound up in her sewing kit um there's just like this pattern that she claims to know nothing about but the other characters on stage seem to think that she has something to do with. Um, And then when her husband goes out for the night, um, this detective appeared and I half expected this man to just be her husband in a beard, the way that he has been treating her um, because the, the plot twist um, that we learn kind of early on uh, is that he is gaslighting her. He is lying to her to try to make her think that she's crazy. And that's actually where we get this term from, is this idea uh, from this play, Gaslight, which in the States was called Angel Street briefly for no reason, because that's the street that they live on. And then they went back to Gaslight, which I think is a much better name. Um, but it's Bella, a dramaturg's take. <laughs> hey, um, but Bella, our, our protagonist, um, has actually like put some information together off stage based on how the lights in her house, which are run off of like wired, not wired gas, but like piped in gas, um, how they flicker and when she starts hearing noise in their like attic space um, that she believes her husband is like breaking back into the house and doing nefarious things up there, which he is. Um, sorry, spoiler. Um, anyway, I think it's a really interesting piece because it because of the information that the audience has and the way that stuff is revealed to Bella and us at the same time. I think we have a similar investment in the stakes of what's going on. And we are also questioning, like Bella is, whether she can be believed. Um, And for the first little bit, we don't know. And I think if you didn't know what the term gaslight was, because it was coined after this play. I think the experience of watching this for the first time would have a lot more of that like paranoid, like, is this going on? Is this happening? Is this not happening? And in fact, in the third act, there's a moment where the detective walks back in and we've only ever seen him when her husband was gone. And he like announces that he might be a figment of Bella's imagination. And for a brief moment, I was like, holy shit, are we getting into like a really weird like play territory where like, no, it was a ghost on stage the whole time that she was talking to or something like that. 
Um, and so I was really excited about that. It doesn't quite delve into that territory, but I can forgive it that because it was written in 1938 and isn't <laughs> as like metatextual and metatheatrical as I am in 2021. I think I'm going to start doing that to people. I'll just randomly announce that I might be a figment of their imagination. <laughs> am I really here? Maybe I'm not. Who knows? I, I started a D&D group when COVID started, and that has actually been a running joke among them, is that be, because none of them, they come from all sorts of walks of my life, and none of them know each other. So that's actually a running joke with them, is that they're all just very complicated AI scripts. Like, each each one of them might be the only real person, and then the rest is just me with, like, a bunch of AIs that I have designed. I Yeah, similarly, my grad cohort, none of whom I've ever met in person until recently, um, we were all just like, are you corporeal? <laughs> are you a person? <laughs> I've only ever seen you on the computer. But anyway, um, I feel like I wish that more plays experimented with the unreliable, reliable narrator question in such mm-hmm, an explicit mm-hmm. way, because I feel like it's really fun to and I and I feel like it's challenging in a really good way as an audience member, because my instinct is always like, oh, yeah, this per- like the the person who's the protagonist of the play is clearly like the person I should root for and trust. But it's interesting to be on that journey of like, who can I trust? Because this is a very much, I think, a play where like you can't really trust anyone. Mm -hmm. And I love I mean, I'm a sucker in all sorts of media for unreliable narrators because Mm -hmm. we are so trusting with storytellers. Um, I think that's what makes some of Agatha Christie's best pieces so exciting is you're like wait what that person's dead how are they here and it's like they were narrating and the bad guy the whole time and it's like how (laughs) what (laughs) um but i think that that's really fascinating because we we put such implicit trust in storytellers um in like all forms of media so questioning that reality is very exciting to me yeah i think the the third play we talked about uh, the Woman in Black by Stephen Malatrat really like begins to push the envelope on that in ways that I I really love. Um, it's so for those who don't know it, uh, it's based on a book by Susan Hill, um, which was written in the 1980s, and it's a an Edwardian Gothic horror story, uh, which was also turned into a film starring Daniel Radcliffe, which I have not seen, but doesn't look very much like the story as it's presented in this play (laughs) anyway i mean the same basic setup but it looks much more like a conventional you know 21st century horror film but i was going to say the the story is about this lawyer who goes uh in london who is dispatched to settle this woman's estate because his law firm handles her business and she's died without heirs and so on and when he gets to her estate, he begins seeing this woman in black uh, all over the place, at first at a distance and then closer and closer. And nobody will tell him what's what's going on, what the story is with that. Although clearly many people in the small town there know. But the play, um, the play is set up in this very interesting way uh, where what the audience actually sees is the author of the story, whose name is Kip, attempting to get lessons on how to like tell the story confidently to his family. And the unnamed actor that he's getting the lessons from is like, okay, you're kind of like messing this up. So I'm going to take over um, as the, why don't we 
switch around a little bit. So I'll read your part and you read everyone else. And then for the rest of the play, you have the actor playing Kip and Kip playing everyone else in the story in this kind of very bare bones, 39 steps ish uh, way. But what I love about that is that from the very beginning, I feel like the play deliberately wrong foots us Mm -hmm. um, as as an audience, because, you know, in the first like 10 minutes of the play, you're trying to keep track of, okay, it's this guy's story, but now the other guy is telling it. And it it creates a sort of psychological jumble, I think, that lends itself to a shade of that feeling of disorientation and of fear of like uncertainty that Kip is describing. Well, and there's um, what's exciting is both in the story that they're telling, but in the theater space, um, a woman in black starts to like appear and only the actor sees her and every time he's like when did you hire this broad um kip is like i don't know what you're talking about or what it's, it's all about? like very cleverly phrased in such a way that it is interpretable as like oh you're doing such a good job at acting or like mm-hmm. because yeah. kips is or the actor is always like oh this is really great like oh this, this is amazing um <laughs> yeah it, 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 it is a little bit of a spoiler but i think it's fine kip tells him at the start of their like quote unquote third day working he's like oh i have a surprise for you and that day the woman in black starts showing up and the actor's like after the first time he does it um the act after the first time she shows up the actor's like that was amazing that was so dope the, uh, that looks so gr- that was so great and kip's like oh thanks so much and then at the very end of the play when uh the actor's like so where did you hire that you know young woman who's playing the woman in black kip's like what my surprise was for you was that i like memorized my lines which is a which is a gift that i wish more actors would give promptly (laughs) (laughs) well i'll tea i'll shade um this is like my favorite this is my favorite thing that horror movies do and i feel like it's a it's a trope that is guaranteed to make something extremely scary when you implicate the person watching it in a personal way into like oh you're seeing because the whole time the woman in black is like a like a sign that you are going to to die um, if you're seeing the woman in black and she's manifesting around you. Like, I think if the audience is also seeing this and is in the space, because it's a theater space. Yeah. I was going to say it's a rehearsal room. It feels very it. personal. Yeah. Well, and she it's like explicit that she appears off of just the main stage like she drifts in and out of the audience if you can find a way for her to appear in like the sides of the house that's exciting um and a way to like remove the fourth wall and to like pull off our suspenders of disbelief where we like we think like everything that's happening in the proscenium is it's in a picture box it's safe it's there i'm here and when it bleeds into the room that you're in it becomes a different thing um which i find very exciting yeah yeah well because like one of the there's this terrible horror movie that i saw a few years ago that is like about a game of truth or dare gone wrong and the way that it resolves at the end is that they implicate the audience in it like explicitly they like break the fourth wall and they look out and they're like okay you're in the game now and they do it in like a more artful scary Mm -hmm. way but that's like it's my favorite thing um (laughs) is it yeah is really removing that wall in such a way like you're not just removing the wall you're like reaching out and pulling the audience on stage with you Mm -hmm. metaphorically 
um, which I think, which I think is cool. So I think the woman in black is most successful of the three in terms of like manifesting that paranoia in the audience, because while I think if I were watching it and didn't know what was going on, I would see the woman in black and definitely be like, something is weird about one person like one person is not acknowledging this at all and that's weird and i don't like that and and the more we talk about this i keep adjusting my definition of paranoia but that's how dramaturgy works um and i was gonna say I, i i wonder if maybe that's another essential element is like not knowing what's going on and also having a personal stake in it yeah yeah i mean i think that um, like the goal of paranoia, the goal, the, the feeling of paranoia is intentionally from like questioning one's surroundings, other people's motives, things that are going on. And I think like that is when we describe people as being paranoid. And I think by removing um, that safety net of the fourth wall, the woman in black forces us to ask that question about what's happening to us now. Whereas like in Gaslight, um, I think Bella is paranoid and we don't have reason to like believe or disbelieve whether she's being rational or whether she's being paranoid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's exciting, but it's not quite the same thing as feeling it yourself. Yeah. I think the way that I would, while we're defining, I think I would define paranoia as knowing that something is not knowing that something is wrong or something is different than what you would expect it to be, but not having the tools to actually suss out what it is and that feeling of wrong footedness and that feeling of like, I know because of X, Y, and Z reasons that something is wrong, but I don't, I, yeah, I'm not equipped to actually, (laughs) I'm not equipped to actually figure it out. Yeah. So when we were when we were getting ready to record this episode um, or when we were first outlining it, actually, we were talking about the fact that horror and paranoia plays seem to be really hard to write. I mean, it, it's uh, it's horror is not a big genre in the theater. I don't I don't think um, no, and a lot of it appears to be like like I'm thinking of like Lauren Hughes Hookman, which is like a slasher play. Um, but a lot of people refer to it as a horror player thinking of like um, Feathers and Teeth by Cherise Castro Smith um, or um, Bug by Tracy Letts. Mm-hmm. Tracy Letts. Also yes. paranoia. Yeah. Also paranoia. Um, but I think a lot of them have are a lot of the plays we classify as like horror plays are like they have monsters in them or they are about humans doing violence to one another or they're about like body horror um, as opposed to like psychological horror. Yeah. And I think I'm not an expert in this, but I don't think this was always true. Um, I I know that in the 19th century, the like late 18th and 19th century horror stories like ghost stories, um, things like that had a big, big vogue, at least in uh, London. I should mm-hmm. say I, I know this because there's a gentleman, um, Gavin Whitehead, who's working on a dissertation about this <laughs> of my acquaintance. Um, so I, I just, I guess I wonder why we think that is why they've either fallen out of style or why we find them harder to write or stage right now. I mean, I think I wonder if some of this is because like we have weird feelings about genre, um, in theater now that we didn't then, 
I also think like horror and comedy are both very, very hard to write because they are all about like setting up expectations and tension mm. and then relieving them in ways that are unexpected. Um, that's what makes good horror work. That's what makes good comedy work. And I think that's why you find comedians who also write horror a la Jordan Peele. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's all about like building tension and then the release. Mm -hmm. Um, and if the release is a laugh, you're doing comedy. And if the release is a scream, you're doing horror. Um, and I think the, the way we do like new work, particularly in the American theater is not really conducive to comedies. Mm -hmm. Um, like comedies are so about timing and like, reading a play for three days and then putting it on its feet in front of an audience, you don't get that timing usually. Um, and I think that that's probably true of horror as well. Like it's hard to do, but I also think if we're getting into the more like spooky, spoopy creature horror, um, we tend to avoid that on stage two because it looks, we feel like it tends to look schlocky or tropey. Um, I am not of that opinion. Personally, I think put 15 ghosts on stage. I want to see it. Uh, but no I feel like a lot. No less than 15. No less than 15 ghosts. But I feel like a lot of like, like the theater that I am very interested in doing, I know I am not allowed to put on our main stage at the theater that I work at because our audience is not into people sword fighting ghosts. Which is a sh which everyone should be shame upon the Portland <laughs> audience. Well, oh, I think geez. no kidding. Um, you're lovely, Portlanders. Was it was it Sarah Rule who said the thing about how? Um, oh, I'm gonna butcher this, but she. I think she, it was her who said something about how like seeing combat on stage died with the advent of guns because watching a gunfight on oh, yeah. stage is not interesting. I think yeah. this is. An, yeah. I think this is an extension of that where it's like it's so easy to dismiss as not real when you see like a, a ghost, a person in a ghost costume. Mm -hmm. Well, um, and it's, and rightly or wrongly, I think people all like theater artists always worry about the comparison to film. Yeah. You know, when which what, hot take is a thing that we should just stop worrying about because I, it's never go, but that's carry on. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. But I do think people, I mean, you talk about a gunfight on stage not being interesting to watch, to which I'm like, well, I, a, I, I don't know I if that's there, true. Yes. But also in film, like so the way we've been trained to watch gunfights is actually very psychological, mm -hmm. you know, because you have the close up in film that you don't like going back to old spaghetti westerns and stuff. You know, it's all about like watching watching the eyes, which are like two inches away from the camera like we've we've been trained to think of that as a kind of psychological thing and theater just can't the theater can't easily do the thing that a close-up does in film yeah but i think what theater is really really good at is what makes horror scary to me which is setting up situations in which you have to imagine what happens mm -hmm. um like i think theater is so good at that whether it's like something happening off stage or a well-timed blackout or whatever. Like, I feel like there's no pressure to see something on stage because theater is really, really good at creating building tension and building a framework to like a moment that you then imagine. I don't need to see somebody sword fighting the ghost. If I see like all the pieces that put it, that, that I can then put together in my brain. Although I would also love to see someone sword fight a ghost. 
Um, yeah, I, I think I, I agree that it's definitely a genre thing. Um, but I think it's a thing that people crave. Like a, a couple of years back, one of our associate artists, uh, affiliate artists here at Portland Stage, um, put together this thing that he called the haunting hour and he adapted some like Stephen King short stories and some other main writers short stories um, of like horror fiction into like a short horror play anthology and it did gangbusters like people were lining up to see this show that normally don't go to plays because we don't make plays like this and I think there there is this feeling that like a theater audience is not interested in seeing these plays which might be true in terms of like the people who classically want to see like family drama in a living room or a dining room like aren't interested in these plays and that's fine but i think we limit what theater can do and limit our audience by doing that well and i feel like from a craft perspective these plays are really satisfying to put together because they're so complicated in the way that writing a really good comedy is really fucking hard. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's so much, like if you look at wait until dark, like there's so much craft there in terms of like calibrating all of these little visual clues and all of these little things that all have to line up mm-hmm. the right way and not just in the writing, but in the production of it. Like if you're producing the woman in black, you are thinking really strategically about where does the woman appear? Where is she coming from? How much of the audience can see her? Because there's something really powerful in like, she's only visible to it like a quarter of the audience. If you're sitting all the way on the far right side of the house or whatever. Um, And then you have all these people reacting and then the people to their left are like, what's going on? Um, But there's so much, there's so much craft embedded in doing work like this that I feel like, I wish we would do more of it because it's like, it's really fun and it's really like complicated and hard and just like the the epitome of like what is fun about the work that we do. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I wish we did more of it too. And I will say if you have a regional theater, like program woman in black in your October slot, like it would do great. I think. Or commission like a writer to write a horror play for you. <laughs> or that. Yeah. Um, produce more horror. Regional theaters aim to scare away at least two subscribers a year with your minimum <laughs> program, with your exciting new programming. Um, no, I mean, I think, you know, much like our advice that we had about uh, tabletop games and like fantasy ish plays, like I think there's an audience for this. And I think that we can do better by programming stuff like this more. And The Woman in Black is an incredible example of this. Um, the adaptation of Turn of the Screw is a really, really great ghost story that's exciting and theatrical and doesn't involve, you know, putting someone in spooky white makeup to go, ooh, at you, you know? Like, I think that there's something very exciting about the theatrical nature of these plays and how it uses that tool set to freak out the audience. And I think that we have these incredible tools. And I mean, Percy, going back to your point about like the the debate between theater and film, like what a theater can do that is exciting is we can make the audience feel involved in it in a way that like someone staring at you out of the silver screen, a la Judy Dench in the end of cats, although that was deeply unsettling, um, does not do the same thing as having uh, a spirit or a figure 
appear in the space or like i remember a show at kcactf where like they dragged a dead body out from under the audience mm. and suddenly the whole audience was like looking under their chairs then you get a dead body <laughs> you get a dead body you all get dead bodies but i think there's there's a way to excitingly um like lower the safety of theater without actually making people unsafe um that like raises the hair on the back of your neck. And I think there's so many theatrical ways that we can do that. Well, and what's really exciting, I I feel like I would be remiss to not mention a play, like a contemporary play that does this because we've been talking about a lot of like fairly old plays, but there's this play called The Interrobangers by M. Sloth Levine that is like Stranger Things, Scooby-Doo, Gang of Teens, dealing with a scary ghost monster. And it's extremely good because it leans into theatricality, it uses a lot of puppets. Like there's a character who's a dog who could be a real dog or could be a puppet. And this is very much like the kind of thing that I happen to also just love. Like, this is just my taste um, is ghosts and puppets. Um, but I feel like, I feel like theater really misses out when it decides not to do like genre plays or it, it shies away from things that have really strong baked in audience expectations. Because if you see, a play about a group of teenagers you're, who are solving mysteries. You're going to think about Scooby-Doo, but that lets you as a producing body or as a person who is working on this play, like really dig into and mess with those things. Like I feel like people dismiss like pop culture theater as like schlocky or um, like pandering or whatever, but it's actually like really fun to think about what people are coming in and expecting when they see things like this and then subverting that. Why would we want to be a mainstream art form <laughs> with thousands of ticket buyers? <laughs> it's a great question. But I also think like in the reverse, like Hamlet and Macbeth are better plays for having ghosts in them. Absolutely. Like the, the secret takeaway of this there episode is, an is impetus. put ghosts in your plays. Put ghosts in your, <laughs> ghosts in your goddamn plays. You I feel like I feel like it's it's this thing that like in in classics a la Shakespeare, like there is no there's no worry about putting the gods or ghosts into a play, even though the people of the day did not believe that gods or ghosts walked among them the way the characters in the play clearly do and are fine with or not fine with. Um, and so I don't understand why we can't do that now. And I feel like there's this like affect that like, oh, but everybody knows that ghosts aren't real. Like, shut up, dude. You watch horror films. We know that the Candyman isn't coming for us, but like it's still freaky and we'll still get freaked out. So like, let's do it. Put ghosts in your plays. Put ghosts in your goddamn plays. And join us next week for another episode of our Paranoia Actual Play, saving 73 JPEGs I desperately need. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percy Hornack, and Nick Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at dndramanerds. Check out cast bios on our website, dungeonsanddramanerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. 